I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I'm your host, Elon Jacobson, and I'm very pleased to have uh, uh, Robin Kovitz uh, with me. Robin, someone I've known for probably a decade now, Robin. Don't want to age ourselves, but that's probably the truth. And uh, Robin <laughs> is the uh, the president and CEO of Baskets. I'm sure a lot of people listening have uh, have seen her uh, striped bags and, uh, and other goodies. And uh, Baskets is one of Canada's fast-growing companies. Uh, prior to uh, starting Baskets in 2014, uh, Robin worked in private equity on the buyouts uh, of mid-sized companies, and she also played an active role in the sale of her family's Western Canadian uh, food manufacturing distribution business and began her career in investment banking. And Robin holds uh, an MBA from the Harvard Business School and a Bachelor of Commerce from Queen's University. And in 2017, she was recognized as Canada's uh, one of Canada's most powerful women, top 100 award winner. So that's uh, that was a lengthy uh, intro, but uh, you have a, you have a, a very uh, accomplished past. So, uh, Robin, once again, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So, so Robin, you're sitting in sunny California, and uh, today uh, of, of recording this is January 17th. Anyone sitting in Toronto knows we have one of the biggest dumps. So, I'm, uh, I'm a bit jealous uh, of you right now. But you know, I, I've known you for a while. I've seen your your progress uh, as it relates to baskets. And I think the first time I met you, you were looking at acquiring a business with your father at the time. But, you know, I don't know a ton of your 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 kind of early life. So if we could take a step back and, uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little more about, you know, how you grew up. You know, you just told me before that uh, you you grew up in Western Canada. But yeah, I'd love to, love to hear a little more. Sure. Before we jump in, I have to say my memory is how kind you were to me when I was trying to find a business. At the time, you know, I, I look at it now, it was 12 years ago when I started. And, you know, it, it also wasn't that commonplace for a woman to be leaving her career to buy a business, especially a woman during like the pregnancy years. And I remember you didn't miss a beat and you, you know, extended your Rolodex to me and introduced me to you know, help me find deals and brokers. And I just, I appreciate that. I, it has never never left me your kindness. And I think that's what this business is all about. I'm clipping this and sending it to my mother because uh, you know, Please I, do. <laughs> I, I grew up in a very matriarchal culture. So she will love hearing that. But I appreciate the kind words. Not every broker or, or deal maker or advisor or investor treated me the way you did. So thank you. I appreciate that. So yeah, I grew up, I grew up in Calgary. So I'm 41 now. So a born and raised in Calgary, which is, uh, you know, I think a great place to, to raise a family, right? Because it's it's a big city, but a small city and a lot of pros and cons to that. You're right by Banff, which is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I used to go skiing every Saturday at Mount Norquay, which is now sort of, I haven't even bothered skiing since I moved to Ontario, which I feel a little bit snobby about. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when you grow up in the Rockies, it's, it's incomparable. But yeah, I, I do need to get my kids on the slopes. But yeah, growing up in Calgary was amazing. And I was very lucky, had two parents who were together and uh, who still are together. 50 years later. And uh, I grew up with a family business. So we were in the the protein manufacturing and distribution space. So we made hamburgers that you could buy like at grocery and also at food service, like A&W's hamburgers, for example, were made by our company. And then we also cut steaks. So for example, for fine restaurants and institutions. So the keg, for example, was a big customer of ours. So we would cut all their center of the plate protein for them. And so I grew up sort of around this family business and the, the 
the boom and bust that comes with any entrepreneur's life and and got to really learn about all aspects of the business and just had an idyllic childhood in many ways. So you like, do you remember being on the floor, you know, in the early days all around all this meat? And, and yes. what was that like? Like, like that must have been an interesting, uh, you know, learning experience. It's funny because now my kids are eight and 11. And that was about the time when I started to work for our family business. Not officially, obviously, you couldn't be paid until you were 14. But, you know, started hanging just around. And, slave labor. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> picking up garbage, you know, whatever I could do back then. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about it. And, and when I think back, I think it's just insane that I worked on a manufacture, meat manufacturing floor, right? I think one of my brother's jobs was pushing blood at one point. Um, but we had, it was really an incredible opportunity. We were unionized. So we were working right shoulder to shoulder with the unionized staff on the assembly line. And it's cold, right, in a meat, a meat factory. Um, and it was a great experience. I remember being on the line calculating how much I would earn at the end of that after tax and trying to figure out, like, juxtaposing that with my lifestyle and trying to figure out how how people could afford to live. And, and you know, just a really great life lesson. Learned a lot on the floor. And then we had this rule that if, if you could get on the honor roll, you could move into the office, which was heated. And so that was a big motivation for me. And so I moved, worked my way up into the office and I, I worked with my family business all throughout high school, evenings and weekends and summers. And then when I was 18, I was like, all right, I'm ready to join. And my dad was like, why would I hire you? You have nothing to offer me. Go to the big city, get a financial education, come back and I'll consider it. So, you know, now again, looking at it as a mother, it's, it's interesting. You know, I had to go and leave Calgary. That was the mandate and, and go get a financial education was what I was encouraged to do. And I, I went to Queens. I did studied commerce, had a great time there, sort of fell into the world of investment banking where I summer did all my summers in investment banking. And then when I graduated from Queens, I went into M&A full time at CIBC at a very exciting time, you know, in the league tables when CIBC was doing very well, you know, in, during the income trust boom, which led to the M&A boom and just had a great experience as a financial analyst, uh, sort of af after the dot com bust, but in that period of growth. Uh, and then I went and fulfilled my lifelong dream of going to the Harvard Business School where I did a master's of business. And I was so interested there because there was such a, a mix between the guys that I'd grown up with, uh, like my dad and grandfather, who, you know, would walk through a manufacturing plant and say the drain's in the wrong place or that racking is too close to the, the sprinkler. And the, the guys, you know, on Bay Street that I'd worked with who, you know, I admired so much and how sophisticated they were sort of analyzing a balance sheet. And, and so when I was at Harvard, I met these guys, these private equity guys who are this incredible mix of the two. And I just thought I need to work in private equity. And so when I returned to Canada, I worked in private equity for many years. And then like many women, I turned 30 and was like, yikes, if I'm going to have kids, you know, my husband and I were like, now's the time. And how am I going to sort of be the kind of mom I want to be. So it was at that time when I really decided to, to leave my career on Bay Street and try and find a small business to run and operate on my own, which was, you know, now there's a whole field called entrepreneurship through acquisition and it, it's pretty commonplace, but 11, 12 years ago, it was not. And a lot of people didn't. This, this was before the search funders. Yeah, before the search funders. Yeah. And I remember when I first heard that term, I, I thought, oh, you're in, in executive search. I mean, it just wasn't a career, right? Like it is now. But I had this vision because of my entrepreneurial roots of, of running a small business. I really enjoyed being with customers and, and you know, helping uh, employees and team members. And, and so I thought I had this sort of romantic idea in my mind of finding a great small business, buying it and growing it. And let me tell you, reality has not been... <laughs> Yeah, you, you don't go back a little bit. You mentioned that your your father said you have nothing to offer me. Go get an education. You know, it's funny. I, I speak to a lot of children of entrepreneurs, and it goes one of two ways. It goes 
whether like screw education, you're going to get more education just being here and others that are very big on education. Why was it that your your family, your parents were so adamant on you being educated? Yeah, I also came from a like a very strong make matriarchal uh, family where my grandmother was on many corporate boards as a pioneer uh, in corporate Canada. And so I think I think through that, um, you know, my father grew up with a strong female figure. And I think I think we always, you know, being Westerners, always were sort of interested in Toronto, the big city and sort of what was going on, uh, you know, in the capital markets there and, and what you could learn at the big schools there. And I think the idea was always go learn and then bring it back. The problem is I didn't didn't go back. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm very grateful. And now when I think about pushing my kids, I'm very grateful that I didn't just, you know, take a job at my family business at 18 and stay in Calgary for my whole life. My life would have looked so different. And you mentioned that your lifelong goal was to get an MBA at Harvard. Explain that to me. That's, a, that's, a, that's an, interesting, <laughs> uh, it's an interesting lifelong goal for, for you know, a, a, a young person sitting in Calgary. Yeah. So actually, my lifelong dream was to go to Harvard for undergrad, but I did not get in. And it really shaped me. So when I was 12, I asked my Zeta what the best school in the world was. And I don't think he knew. He was like from Lithuania. And he said, Harvard, because, you know, that has great brand recognition. And so from that day forward in 1992, I always wanted to go to Harvard. It was my dream. And, you know, there's not that many kids from Calgary who go to Harvard. I didn't get in in undergrad. Actually, I was on the wait list, which was in many ways soul destroying, but in many ways also, yeah, really a wonderful experience because I learned that, you know, you got to get up and try again. And, you know, that's the, at the core of entrepreneurship, right? Every day I hear no, or something crazy or horrible happens. And it's just, you, you have to, how you take that failure in quotes is at the key, I believe of being a successful entrepreneur. So, you know, I decided I didn't get into Harvard, but I tried again. And so my goal shifted. I said, okay, I can't get into undergrad. I want to now do an MBA. And if I, if I hadn't gotten into MBA, it would have been executive education. I wasn't ready to give up on that goal. But the goal was to get to Harvard, and, and it truly was a transformational experience for me. I actually work as a consultant to the admissions team because I'm so passionate about helping other Canadians get there because it really changed my life. And, and in what way? I mean, people hear about the Ivy League schools and the, the, the network that that uh, comes with. But outside of the network, how else did it change your life? You know... I think a few ways. So firstly, I think being from Calgary, it's pretty homogeneous environment. It just opened my mind. You know, we all have this, I think, perception in our minds of what Harvard, the stigma of Harvard, but I think the reality is very, very different. I mean, there were people from all walks of life in, in a very liberal environment where there was this incredible diversity and synergy. And so I think, number one, it really opened my horizons. I had friends from all over the world from different socioeconomic, from different race, religion, everything. And it, it really helped me see that the world was so much bigger than Calgary or Canada. So that sort of feeds into the network. Number two, but just broadening my my horizons. Number two, the faculty are just incredible. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever read so much. And, and because it's a self-contained campus, you know, you could be in the gym next to a Nobel laureate or, you know, in line at the cafeteria next to Michael Porter. It's It's a really special sort of community, I guess, is to wrap it up. So it's it has to do with the network, but it's more than that. It's sort of the way you you transform and grow being a part of this incredible community. Anything seems possible when you're on campus at the Harvard Business School. So you you land up doing investment banking. You then go into private equity. I mean, that's a pretty good career path. I, I know you touched on it, but but like, what was the day like and how long was the process where you decided, screw it, I'm doing it, I'm leaving, and I'm gonna I'm gonna take that risk. It was actually a very difficult decision because I worked at a fund and I loved my partners and I loved what I was doing. Uh, we were a small sort of under the radar fund. I believe two of the most successful investors in Canadian history. 
uh, we just raised 100 million bucks and we bought four companies really quickly. And I was like the apprentice where it was very lean. We didn't even have any admin staff. We had a CFO and two partners and me. And so I got to do everything from soup to nuts on those deals. And I was very happy. You know, I could have stayed in private equity forever. For me, it's it's sort of funny now looking back. I wanted to work from home, which was not a thing. <laughs> it's so funny. Now, and, and now, COVID, now you right? leave. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just be close to home with the kids and breastfeed and, you know, for those early years. But I, I knew that just being home wouldn't be enough for me. I wanted to have the best of both worlds. It's so interesting and inspiring for me now to watch the young women because working from home really is a thing, right? So, you know, if, if, if I had been born sort of 10 years later, I probably would have never left private equity because I loved it. I love my partners. I love the work I was doing. The hardest part for me was that I think that they saw me as a competitor as opposed to seeing that I really needed to leave for personal reasons as opposed to, you know, I, know, I had no interest in being in the private equity business. I wanted to stay close to those portfolio companies and still help, but I, I needed more work-life flexibility now that I was a mom. Like you said, we met pretty early on in your search and you know for those that haven't tried to buy a business they have no idea right like there's so many lessons i'm sure you learned along the way i know there are people listening right now that their desire is to get out there and, and buy a business and you know start their kind of entrepreneurial journey through uh you call it entrepreneurship through acquisition right mm -hmm. yep eta yeah maybe, maybe you could talk to me a little bit about a your personal experience and then some of the lessons you learned and some of the things that people don't think about when they have that in their mind is uh, the path they'd like to go. Yeah, wow, great question. It Search it seems so glamorous, right? You know, you have a bad day, like you said, and you're like, I hate my boss, I wanna go be my own boss. And that feels very glamorous. Search is the exact opposite of glamorous. You have to literally be willing to wipe the toilet bowls and that, <laughs> to be good at this job. You have to be willing to do everything from from answering the phone to delivering, I mean, on, on the day after Christmas this year, I took, I was, in Vancouver and I was taking my whole family in the car and we had to do four, four gift basket deliveries. And they were like, why are we doing this? You know, baskets is a big company now. And I said, because we didn't get it done. There was a problem with the deliveries and, and the buck stops with me and there's nobody else to do it. UPS is closed. We're doing it. Uh, and I think sort of all the way back to search, you have to be willing to do everything. And I think what I see, I mean, I see a lot of amazing kids in search. The ones that don't make it aren't willing to clean the toilets. And you have to be willing to do that, I think, to be successful. 100%. I'm sure that your childhood played a huge role in that because I think, you know, a lot of these searchers come from Ivy League schools and like they've never had to do that. Right. And uh, it's a really, really difficult thing. And uh, one that takes, you know, quite a humble attitude to to recognize what's needed to get it done. So I'm sure, you know, watching your father build or whoever was responsible for the building of that business, you know, played a huge role in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and one of my, my kids was kind of complaining when we were doing our Christmas deliveries. And I was quick to say, you know, this business feeds us, it supports all of our 100 employees and their families. If we don't take care of the business first and put it first, like, you know, and, and I think that was an important lesson for my child as well, right? It, so let's talk about baskets. 2014, you know, why baskets? Give me the what went through your head and, and what your vision was. Sure. So I think like most people in search, we all have, and I, and the analogy I always use is dating, right? You know, we all have our list of what we're looking for in a life partner. And, you know, the people who are like perpetually single have a very long list. And the people who are married know, you know, you really only get like three. So when you're looking to buy a business, you know, I, I had like my three non-negotiables that I developed over the course of my education and career of the things that I, I wouldn't, I couldn't give up. So for example, watching my father's business, I knew that I could not live with customer concentration. 
that was one of my big non-negotiables. And so I wanted a business with thousands of customers that who repurchased in a relatively frequent uh, time schedule. So like not mattresses, right? Because the repurchase cycle of a mattress is 10 years. So I knew that for me, it was it was a certain very specific investment criteria with a, like a private equity lens. And so one of mine was customer concentration. I had other criteria. And then I, you know, I had my wish list like you would if you're looking for a life partner. Oh, so what, what, were the, what were the other two non-negotiables? I'm just curious. Sure. <laughs> so thousands of customers uh, that would repeat purchase on a, on a condensed purchase cycle, like at least once a year. The other one was I wanted to be in, in an industry that was growing or an industry where I thought it was poised where I could steal share. I didn't want to, a lot of searchers are looking for businesses that grow at sort of two to 3%. I had a different model. I sort of wanted to bootstrap through the deal and then really grow as opposed to raising raising equity. And so to do that, I needed to find a space where there was an opportunity to grow or to steal share faster than the market was growing. And so that was an important criteria for me. And the last criteria, you have to promise not to laugh. And this is where when I, okay, <laughs> when I speak at the Harvard Business School or at Yale to their ETA classes, for me, and it was it's such a gendered thing, it was it was passion. You know, here I was a brand new mom and and I thought, you know, I was like leaving the house, leaving this baby. And I thought it has to be something that I love like a third child. If, if anyone laughs at that, they're not an entrepreneur because I couldn't agree with <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the professors will say, like, don't that's such a female thing and don't don't go from the heart. And, you know, who cares? You could, you know, make money with porta potties. And sure, you can. And I was actually very close to doing a deal that was very sort of boring, but I passed it to someone else who did a better job with it. For me, you know, that I was going to be putting a lot of my life into this and I wanted I wanted it to feel like a third child. And so I wanted it to be something that I got really excited about. And so that's where baskets became sort of interesting. It's definitely a pink ghetto business where people like if I had a dollar line for everyone who's like, oh, you make gift baskets in your basement. <laughs> I was like, no, we're like almost 20 million in sales and I have 100 employees. But, you know, it's it's very overlooked and, uh, you know, underestimated, which is fine, fine by me. But there's many things about our businesses that are really difficult. So I think like what I've seen in the, in the industry, it's very easy to get to not easy, but there are a lot of people who get get to a few million in sales. But getting past there is very difficult because it's it's extremely logistics intensive. So when you think about a gift basket, it's really the logistics business, right? Many different components being timed perfectly, going out to many different places, being timed perfectly with information flowing and then costing being done properly. And it's very in our industry, there's very few people who do it well and can do it well at scale at the level that these corporation big B2B customers expect. I cut you off. You said that those are three non-negotiables and you had a wish list as well. Yes. Tall, funny, you know, it's nice to have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think like any private equity firm, like nothing seasonal, nothing cyclical, you know. And then obviously with the gift basket business, I I had to sacrifice that. And part of yeah, my I was going to say I can't imagine that business is not seasonal and cyclical. No, but part of part of what I've done is de-seasonalize the business, and and a lot of our our planning is around that and how to stabilize sort of you know the Q4 rush. But yeah, there were, you know, just very standard private equity sort of deal criteria that were on my mind. But I always encourage searchers to find three, your three non-negotiables and go after those. And as you've grown this business since 2014, you know, coming up on, you know, eight years, what, what are some of the lessons that you learned that you just could have never imagined you were going to learn these lessons? Wow. I mean, my dad is so funny. When I grew up watching my dad, a few things struck me. One is that he would always used to have this expression saying, I used to drive to work wondering what was going to happen today. And I always thought that was a bizarre expression because, you know, I'd sort of worked in investment banking where your days are a little bit more predictable. And now that I'm an entrepreneur, 
it, I, I get it. Like an alarm's going off here, a container's on fire there. Like the weirdest, you know, someone's complaining about an employee's body odor there. Like the weirdest, strangest <laughs> things happen that I that come to me, right? Because it's only the stuff that gets floated up to me that, that nobody else knows how to handle. And so literally I drive to work every day and I say, I wonder what crazy and wonderful thing is gonna, I'm going to deal with today. And every day I'm, I mean, today they canceled our Facebook account because they thought that um, one of our ads was, sexual and it's it's a baby gift ad like it has nothing nothing it's just like their algorithm got it wrong and so we're fighting with facebook today to try and get our account back our instagram account was was uh, ransomed by pirates a couple months ago like just the weirdest most wonderful things happen i think the hardest thing for me in terms of my own professional development um a few things one has been learning that like a laundry bin your to-do list never ends as an entrepreneur and learning it sounds like you've you've been on this journey too learning when to just you have to take out time for yourself, for your health, for your sanity, uh, because you could, I could work 24 seven alone and never get it all done. Never. 100%. 100%. You have to be, you know, I like neat and tidy and that doesn't exist. And you have to no. be, you have to be, you know, content with that. That's been difficult. You know, the first thing you mentioned to me, which is sticking in my head was that I treated you nicer than some other dealmakers. Like to me, I want to talk about this kindness, the idea of kindness, because I never really understood why people don't act kindly. Like for, forget about it just being the right thing to do. I think strategically, like if you just want to look at it through like pure business strategy, I think it makes more sense. So, you know, people think that being tougher and being an asshole works. I think it works for short periods of time, but building something like that and becoming a leader like that, I firmly believe it doesn't work. So, you know, what's your idea of, of kindness and, and, and the role it plays in, in, in being a good entrepreneur, you know, being a good leader, whatever it might be? Yeah, I think you and I are um, really aligned there. And I think we're unfortunately quite rare. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it either. I mean, to me, yeah, it's, it's, it's just who I am as a person. It makes sense to me. And, and like you said, it's good business strategy. I mean, like I look now at the grocery stores and how they're, you know, just even the way that the frontline workers have been treated and, and despite posting record games and there's still many, you know, at or minimum wage. So one of my goals was the second that we, I could get back baskets to the point where I could afford it. I didn't want to have any employees at minimum wage. I don't think the minimum wage is living wage. Uh, I don't think, especially in Toronto, I don't think you can afford to live on $15 an hour. And so that was, you know, it's it's a challenge, right? Because I'm running a business, not a charity. But I think one of one of the early lessons that I had, I really struggled as a first-time CEO, as a first-time young female CEO, you know, coinciding with being a, a new mom. I think one of the things I really learned is that a lot of us get to positions of power because we're great doers. You know, I, could, I loved, you know, staying up all night, building a deck, building a model. I was a great doer, but that is not going to make you a strong leader or a CEO. To be a great CEO or leader, I'm learning and I, I, I don't have all the answers. I have coaches along the way and, you know, I'll study people I admire all the time is to get things done through other people. And I think the way to do that is to treat them like you'd want to be treated or more importantly, to treat them how they want to be treated. And I think, you know, if you're paying people minimum wage and, you know, not paying them for lunch and, you know, just not doing the right kind thing, I think, you know, they're going to view you just like a job too. Um, and so I just really believe whether it's customers, employees, anything, colleagues that you should be always lead with kindness. And, and I do believe, I believe in karma. And I think, you know, maybe it's naive, but I think at the end of the day, um, you have like it's you have to just be able to look in the mirror and i think it it comes back to you in spades and you know what even today like i'm stuck in california there's a snow day and you know and you know some people 
are um, like shoveling to get to work because they love baskets so much and they want to make sure that the key deliveries get done today. And, and I think you can't pay people for that. That's something that's a culture you have to build. And I think it starts with kindness. You know, it's interesting. When COVID hit for years, people asked me why I was why I invested so much time and effort and money into culture. Like I loved having events. I loved having after work drinks on a Thursday or Friday. And we spent way more time and money than 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 people thought was reasonable. And when COVID hit, I said, now you understand. I now have a whole bunch of chips that I have because I invested in culture and you don't. And it wasn't done strategically. Like I actually like that fun and I like to have fun with the people around me. But the reality is, is there actually is good strategy and reason to do that. And again, it's something that I just don't understand. People don't understand. Me too. Me. I, th- I love that you figured that out. So many leaders haven't. I mean, in, in our business, it's really interesting because, for example, I get pushed all the time. Can I have free shipping? Can I have a discount? And we've just taken a firm line saying we can't. We can't offer a discount. We don't offer free shipping. You know why? Because X percentage of parcels are going to get lost by UPS. Y percent of something might go wrong. And I'm going to replace that parcel. No questions asked. 100% send a new one on me because that's the right thing to do. And I can't afford to do that if I'm giving you a 50% discount and free shipping. You also can't afford to pay your employees fairly if you have to squeeze margin and squeeze margin, right? And so we've just taken the line that we will always do the right thing. And you know what? And in the beginning, I, I think we did lose some business because some people went to our competitors who are often crazy discounts. But then in the in the X percent that does get lost and, and the competitor saying, go file a claim with Canada Post. And I'm saying, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. I'm sending a brand new one on me. Nothing, no cost to you tomorrow. I just think doing the right thing is will get you far in business. You've mentioned a few times the idea of being a female entrepreneur, mom, 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 mompreneurship. How do you think that your journey has been different, different than someone who's a, a man in you know same career path, uh, whether it be you know, banking, private equity, now entrepreneur? You know, I you know I like to. I'm very very much into meritocracy. That's the way I view the world. But I know that I can't speak for others' journeys. So I'd love to hear how how that's shaped your life and and where we are and where we're headed and and what your views are for 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 women that want to get into leadership you know investment banking private equity entrepreneurship whatever it may be I love that you asked that a lot of men aren't aware that you know the journey is different for sure I think I feel so lucky like two generations ahead of me I think hey look look there was a time when there wasn't even like a, a female washroom legislature in Canada right I mean it just was a different world women weren't women's place wasn't in business and and rooms where decisions, important decisions were being made. Now, thanks to our grandmothers and mothers, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for my generation and even more for our daughters. But yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't been easy. I think that bias exists. I think it exists in credit adjudication. I think I've even probably called you a couple of times over the years when I faced some bias and tried to pick your brain on how I could outsmart it. Um, I think humans have bias, right? I'm not like criticizing. I think we've come a long way as a society, but I think, you know, and there's a lot of research now, actually, the venture industry is doing a lot of research that, you know, women um, tend to present their their, uh, more conservative financial case, whereas men tend to present. There's just, there are some gender differences in the way we approach uh, leading businesses and also in the way we approach raising capital. And and I think we, we've come a long way. I think we have a long way to go. It's funny. My husband has joined our business about three years ago. So he's a lawyer. And, you know, he, we joke that he does all the stuff I don't want to do, like employment agreements and leases and contracts and all the boring stuff, you know, that I had to do for many years. Because when you're a small business, you don't necessarily want to pay for a lawyer. But so he does that. But he's also sort of 
between us, we have great work-life balance so that someone can pick up the kids and drop them off between us, like not one of us, but combined, we have good work-life balance. And, you know, there are times, there are still times when, you know, someone will be talking to him as if he runs the business just because he's a six foot five white guy. And he's so funny. He literally says, honestly, like she is the brains, talk to her. And he just redirects. And it's, you know, it's sometimes like a very senior older banker or some, some weird situation. And he makes, he makes a joke of it. He's like, it's hundred percent her. She's the decision maker. So I, you know, I'm excited when that's no longer a thing, but I think we've come so far. And yeah, I was just asking you, have you seen it changing even over the last kind of 10 years? Yeah, for sure. Change. When I was pregnant with my daughter, Jill, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I was, you know, thinking of doing this and, and there's no way I could have raised money, like just no way. And, and now when you look at someone like Joanna Griffiths from Nix, who just raised $53 million pregnant with twins, like heavily pregnant with twins, like that's amazing to me in 10 years, like it just wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. So I think women like her and women like her who are putting it out there are really making making differences. But I just wanted to say also that I think there are a lot of advantages to being a woman too. I think oftentimes people see me as their sister or their daughter and they tell me things they shouldn't that help me, you know, it certainly helped me in the deal process. Um, so I think, you know, there's pros and cons to everything. And I just am, feel grateful and lucky for my, my journey and path and hope to help others. So before I let you go, I want to ask just about one other thing, because it's it's funny to me that the one the one thing he told me not to laugh at was the one thing I completely like agree with more than anything else is this idea of passion. And you know, I, I hear people say all the time to young entrepreneurs, like follow what you love and you know, you'll you'll achieve success. And I don't think they explain it properly because I really believe that you can't outwork passion. For me, this is a hobby, it's not a job. I happen to get paid to do what I do, but this is what I love doing. And if it's a job for you and you have to actually put effort into doing it. It's very, very difficult to compete with someone who does it for fun, right? Like it doesn't require effort to me, right? And now there are things that happen, of course, that are difficult and you know require effort, but the process of doing what I do and waking up every day doesn't require effort because I'm super passionate about it. So, you know, what's your view, you know, either agreeing or adding to that statement about the idea of passion? Yeah, I think. I think we're so lucky. I have the same experience and we are so lucky. I look at people who dread going to work and just see it as a job. And I I feel so sad for them and sorry for them. Can you imagine just waking up every day and dreading doing something that you do for 40 plus hours a week? Like it's to me, that's no way to live. And, uh, and as I evolve into a leader, I'm really trying to help my team. So when I see someone not working out or, you know, I'll try and invest in them and meet with them and I'll say, Hey, like, what's up? What do you love to do, you know, when you're not being paid? And then I try and craft a role around that. And I think that's really helped us too. We have a world-class team at Baskets. And I think that's been sort of instead of, you know, and it was an evolution for me as, as a CEO, but instead of like getting mad at someone for not doing a good job, which is, you know, first natural instinct, it's trying to figure out why. And then how can we get you, what do you like? Everyone has something that, to offer. So how can we get you operating in, in a role that makes you sing every day and want to skip into work? Because life's too short not to be doing something you love. So Robin, what's the what's the future look like for uh, for baskets? What's what's the grand plan here? So you know, baskets really is my third child. So I love it. I have no, you know, I get calls every day, but I have no interest in exiting. I want to keep building. Um, I want to, you know, the more successful we become, I want to help other female entrepreneurs and help our community more. And you know what? At the essence of our business is that we help people connect. Our business and the pandemic has made that even clearer. We help bring people together. If you want to let someone know how much they mean to you, professionally, personally, whatever, there's probably a basket for that. And that's a beautiful thing. And I want to keep growing and expanding and, you know, trying building new technology. And, uh, you know, I'd love to be 100 million in the next five years. It's a dream. That's great. So for those that are listening that would like to follow along in your journey, what's the best way that they can uh, 
keep track of what you're up to. Oh, thanks. They could follow at Basket Inc. or Robin Kovitz on Instagram or LinkedIn, and we, we're pretty prolific there. Or they can even check out our website. That's Baskets with an I. Awesome. Well, Robin, again, thank you so much for joining me. And until next time. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.